Hosea chapter 3, verses 1 through 5. Hosea writes, Then Yahweh said to me, Go again, love a woman who is loved by her companion and is an adulteress, even as Yahweh loves the sons of Israel, though they turn to other gods and love raisin cakes. So I bargained for her for myself for 15 shekels of silver and a homer and a half of barley. Then I said to her, you shall stay with me for many days. You shall not play the harlot, nor shall you have a man, so I will also be toward you. For the sons of Israel will remain for many days without king or prince, without sacrifice or sacred pillar, and without ephod or household idols. Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek Yahweh their God and David their king, and they will come in dread to Yahweh and to his goodness in the last days. Amen. This is God's word. Let's pray one more time. Our God and our Father, we praise you tonight again for your word, and we thank you for this uh, beautiful little chapter. And we would ask that tonight you would impress these five verses deeply, etch them into our hearts and our minds, that we might know you, love you, and that we might rejoice in all of your redemptive plan. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, we've been introduced already to this prophet named Hosea. At the beginning of the book, he's a young man, we presume, and he is commanded by God to go and to take to himself a woman, a wife, chapter 1, verse 2, of harlotry. In other words, Hosea is told as a prophet he is going to deliver a message to Israel, in particular in the north, in a very unique and startling way. Hosea is going to preach, doubtless he preached the word of God, but his very marriage is going to be a message. God is going to show to Israel, to faithless Israel, a picture of the ugliness of her spiritual adultery and apostasy. And so Hosea takes to himself a wife named Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, And she gives uh, Hosea a few children, and those children are representative of God's uh, judgment upon the people. But we've learned in chapter 1 and chapter 2 that though God is going to, uh, for a while, as it were, disown Israel, he is in the last days going to call them his people, and they will, he will be their God. And so we've already seen the, the startling nature of Hosea's relationship with Gomer, but now it really comes to a, uh, an impact, a height here in chapter 3. At this point, we learn, apparently, we have to read through the line, between the lines a little bit, but apparently Hosea, married to Gomer, um, has children with Gomer, but Gomer uh, leaves Hosea and goes off to a life of wanton pleasure, lust, prostitution. And um, you can imagine how painful and bitter that was, even though Hosea knew it would happen. He knew that that's what God had called him into this marriage for, 
and uh, he experienced in a very personal way, obviously. Um, I want to remind you again, maybe I don't need to say this, the Bible here is not somehow teaching that women are somehow more prone to uh, promiscuity or sin. That would be absolutely ridiculous conclusion in light of the record of Scripture, which again in our study of First and Second Kings has, for the most part, highlighted the spiritual adultery of men, of the kings of Israel. So this is not about men and women, and this is not even firstly about husbands and wives. In fact, if you read into the book of Hosea, Lessons for Marriage, you're probably going to get yourself in a lot of trouble. Uh, Just stop. Really, as far as you should go is husbands love your wives, wives love your husbands. Love each other, love your spouse, but you really shouldn't go any further than that. You're going to get in trouble. And you're going to twist the scriptures. Sorry, this text was not originally intended for a marriage seminar. It's not why it's here. Um, It has lessons and certainly impacts for marriage. But Hosea's marriage to Gomer is first and foremost and primarily a lesson on God's covenant love for his people. The nature of it, the relentlessness of it, and it is a startling message. So Gomer has apparently left Hosea, gone off, and gone and just pursued one man after another. And, um, you know, in our day and age, we always have to have a reason for that. There's certainly, you know, we have to say uh, there must be something in her background. There must be something in her psychology. There must be some reason. And in our day and age, it seems that we can hardly bring ourselves to face what the Bible tends to teach, which is sinful men and women tend to do what they do in their evil ways because simply they want to. They want to. They lust. And they long for pleasure. Why do people give themselves to drugs and and sexual promiscuity when it leads to all kinds of heartache and physical ailments and diseases and so forth? Why do people give themselves to bondage, to pornography, and, and all manner of evil? We want to kind of redeem it. We want to make it respectable. And so we try to label it with a health cause or a psychological cause. And the Bible just tells it like it is. Sinners do what they do because they want to. Like a sow, like a dog returns to its vomit or a sow rolls in the mud. Sinners, it's unreasonable. There's no rational now to it. It's base, it's depraved, it's wicked. It arises out of the corruption of the depraved human heart. Gomer just wants to go. And she gives herself to men And sadly, many of us in this room can think of situations in which a woman or a man pursued this kind of course. And what started out in maybe they were beautiful or handsome in their younger days, and they gave themselves to this life of wanton pleasure, of of sleeping with whomever, giving themselves to every form of sexual immorality, And over time, they are debased. And the beauty or the handsomeness that once characterized them fades. 
You've seen the pictures of the changes in those who give themselves to a life of drugs in a manner of months and years. They go from being looking like a relatively healthy person to aging what seems to be decades. Gomer has, for no reason other than lust, discontent, ditched Hosea and apparently gone off and loved just about anyone and given herself with a not a true love, given herself to just about any man, any man who will have her. And it has left her in a terrible condition. So I want to, with that context, I want to back up and just help you understand this chapter that Gomer and Hosea both illustrate two realities. It's very simple. Gomer illustrates Israel's spiritual unfaithfulness and adultery. That's it. Don't, don't read into it more than that. Gomer illustrates her life, her sin, her adultery, her bondage. It illustrates Israel, the nation of Israel, and Judah to some degree. We'll see Hosea speaks to Judah. But Gomer illustrates in a very powerful way the ugliness of Israel's spiritual adultery. Hosea, on the other hand, illustrates in his relationship to Gomer, Yahweh, the Lord's relationship to faithless Israel. That's it. If you really want to boil it down, that those five verses, Gomer illustrates, is a walking illustration of Israel's spiritual adultery. Hosea and his actions towards Gomer are an illustration of the Lord Yahweh's covenant love towards unfaithful Israel. So with that as our overarching um, outline tonight, in the next few moments, let's look at these two illustrations, uh, this man and this woman, and what they teach us about Israel and especially about Yahweh's, our God's, love for his wayward people. First of all, Gomer illustrates Israel's spiritual adultery. I've already spoken of this, but in verse 1 of chapter 3, Hosea is told to go again, love a woman who is loved by her companion and is an adulteress. Now, there's questions among some scholars as to whether this is really Gomer, but there's no reason to think that she is anyone else. Um, we learn here that Hosea has apparently truly loved Gomer. And the word companion there, there is a little instruction on marriage. God made uh, Eve for Adam so that Adam would not be alone. And companionship is basic to marriage. And all of you who are married here tonight, that's part of your job, is to work on and tend that relationship with your spouse because he or she is your companion. And so uh, Hosea loved her, um, had children with her, but she went off and committed adultery. And uh, she's not named. Um, maybe we shouldn't read too much into that, but it's interesting that, that she loses her name. 
She loses her dignity, maybe. She, she becomes just another prostitute, just another harlot. Whereas once upon a time, she had a dignity. She was Gomer, the daughter of Diblaim. She was the wife of Hosea, the prophet, through her her wanton sin and giving herself away, she just becomes a, a, a nobody, another, another sinful woman, another prostitute. It's tragic. It's sad. She has gone off and committed adultery. And apparently, in verse 2, we learn that Hosea actually has to go not merely introduce himself to her again, but he actually has to go purchase her. He has to bargain for her. So what's going on there? She had apparently in her, in her life of just reckless lust and pursuit of pleasure, as people do, sin never comes without a cost. It always promises that it promises, oh, it always promises much, and delivers little except bondage and ever-increasing slavery. And that's literally what happens, is she gets into this lifestyle. Apparently, she builds up debts. She is maybe abused, whatever the case may be. But she gets herself in a place, kind of like the, um, the prodigal son, where she has just spent herself, and she finds herself basically as a slave, and she actually has to be bought back by Hosea. She is purchased by him. It is, she's, she's a slave. She's on the slave market. And this is like Israel. Israel had left Yahweh, the Lord. God had entered into covenant with Israel and Judah. Of course, originally they were one people. He had been made very clear to them that he would be their God and they would be his people. They were commanded to not have any other gods before him. And yet we've learned in the history of Israel, her history was just a history largely of going after one God or goddess after another. And like Gomer's behavior, Israel had no reason uh, Gomer, apparently, I mean, it's not, there's no indication that Hosea was a bad husband. There's no indication that he wasn't somehow meeting her needs. She simply left him. She simply abandoned him. There was no reason to it. There was no rationale. You look in vain for somehow her background as a way to explain it. She did what she did because she wanted to do what she wanted to do. And the same was with Israel. There's no rationale for it. There's there's no reason for it. God had already purchased Israel out of slavery in Egypt. He had loved the nation of the people of Israel, cared for them, brought them through the wilderness into the promised land. He had given them rain. He had given them food. He had given them abundance as as he had promised. And they, instead of giving the praise to the Lord they gave their praise to Baals and Asherahs. In other words, the gods of this world, the gods who are no gods. And they did it for no reason. There's no reason for it. God did not fail on his part. Yahweh did not fail. And so it was not for any lack or fault on Yahweh's part that Israel committed spiritual adultery. And Israel's pursuit of her 
her other gods was, was, was impassioned. You remember the days of uh, Jezebel and, and uh, Ahab and, and, and just one generation after another. They loved the Baals. They loved the Asherahs. And it wasn't just the kings and the queens. It was down to the level of the populace. It was popular. It was actually cool to go to the Baal parties and the Asherah parties. It was, it was um, appealed to uh, pleasure and, and lust. And, and it was, became acceptable and multi-generational spiritual apostasy. Israel abandoned Yahweh and committed spiritual adultery. And it has led to her impoverishment, like Gomer, Israel's degradation, like Gomer, and slavery, ultimately in bondage. Israel could have been one of the most notable nations on earth because she had God as her God, Yahweh as her God. But instead, because of her spiritual harlotry, she just became another backwater little blip on the international political scene. And in the days of Jeroboam II, she thought of herself as, uh, as rather well-to-do and rich. And those are the days in which Hosea ministered. He's, he's confronting Israel about her spiritual adultery at the height of her apparent outward success. But not long after this prophecy, Israel will be invaded by the Assyrians the Assyrians will absolutely humiliate the Israelites. Um, they will make the Israelites bow before them. They will haul the population of Israel off to other lands like their cattle. They will bring in other peoples into the land of Israel to make certain that their land will never again be occupied by or rebel again. Israel, because of her spiritual adultery, is going to be impoverished, stripped bare, degraded, and finally literally brought into slavery and bondage, exile. It's a tragic scene. And Gomer is a standing picture of the ugliness of Israel's spiritual adultery. Well, it's sad to see that. Uh, and I need to note, I also missed in verse 1, that God brings up the fact that Israel turns to other gods and loves raisin cakes. What's the deal with the raisins? Does God have something against raisins? No, he, he made grapes. He, he made raisins. I like raisins. I still like raisin bran. Um, I don't know if that makes me old, but uh, I think it's a pretty good cereal. And anyways, uh, there's nothing, God has nothing against raisins per se. So what's going on here? Um, God is the one, again, who made grapes. And there were times in Israel's history where when they enjoyed raisin cakes. But apparently over time, these raisin cakes became part and parcel of the worship of the other gods. And uh, so the, the idea is they love raisins more than they love Yahweh. The, Gomer uh, loved, loved raisins more than she loved Hosea. Israel loves raisin cakes more than she loves Yahweh. It's tragic. And it is sad. Gomer is a picture of Israel's folly. 
it's worth pausing here and learning. And young and old here tonight, sin promises much, but it delivers nothing but pain, sorrow, and bondage. And you may think you're, I mean, think about the arrogance of when we think this. You may think that you're going to be the first one out of billions of sinners to beat the odds. And that this time you're going to be able to play the system so that you're going to be able to walk the line and dabble in sin just enough to gain pleasure but you won't be brought into bondage. You won't be degraded. You won't be in slavery. And you're a fool if you think that. And so am I. And so we who are believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we who are forgiven people, we who have been redeemed from the slave market of sin, we ought to have a fear and trembling of sin. We ought to fear it. We ought to, we ought to flee from it. Scriptures, for example, in sexual immorality, what do we do with it? Flee, Paul says to Timothy. Flee. Be terrified of falling into sin. Stay far from it. And I pray that God, you can pray for me, that God will keep within me to my last days a fear you know sometimes you know we've we've been aware of of tragically of so many pastoral failures and and ultimately it's God's mercy if he keeps any man but one of the graces that God has put in my life that I'm being reminded of tonight is that he has shown me in some very upfront and close and personal ways, what happens to a man, what happens to a family, what happens to a church when you dabble with sin. And I, if I'm sane, how do I, you know, what's a mature response? How do you fight sin? You keep your sharp, wits about you and basically you be scared out of your wits of falling into sin and you do not be ashamed to say I can't handle that I need to stay away from that I just God have mercy on me but I am terrified of falling into that kind of disrepute you need to have that if you're not afraid of sinning I don't mean to be unkind, you're a fool, and you need to stop being a fool tonight. And you need to be wise in the Lord Jesus Christ. So fear sin. So Gomer illustrates Israel's unfaithfulness, but secondly tonight, and most importantly, Hosea illustrates powerfully Yahweh, our God's love for his faithless people. He illustrates Yahweh's relationship to faithless Israel. I'm going to make several observations here. And as we look at Hosea's love towards Gomer and then on to God's promises to Israel, we learn several things about our God. First of all, he chooses to love his people. 
Specifically, he chooses to love Israel. God says to Hosea in verse 1 of chapter 3, Go again, love a woman who's loved by her companion and is an adulteress. I mean, he's loved her before. And he's going to do this again? I mean, he's, he's been cheated on. He's, he, she's committed adultery. She's humiliated him. I mean, everybody knows Gomer is Hosea's wife. And he's been brought into ill repute, as it were, because of her. People must have questions. What's wrong with Hosea? That his wife would go off and act like this? She's brought shame to him. She's brought heartache to him and to his children. And God says, go again, love that woman. It's choice. And Hosea does. He chooses to set his love anew upon his adulterous spouse. God chooses to love Israel. Not because of anything lovely in Israel, the nation, not because something good in her. And the same, what is true of Israel is the nation is true of, of every believer. God doesn't look at any one of us in our sin and see a good prospect and somehow looks at us and thinks that there's some good material to work with and then sets his love on us. It is just an unmerited, sovereign, gracious choice to set his love on his people. It's the only thing that would explain Hosea's love for Gomer. It's not rational. It doesn't arise from any potential it's not because Gomer at this point is lovely she's she's again been degraded she's probably has the marks on her countenance of of just a life of sin and selfishness and and where once she was maybe a beautiful woman she's maybe her very body itself her face shows the marks of of a life of sin and there she is in the slave market maybe bound, maybe naked, in shame. Nobody cares about this woman. She's so given herself away, she's like a beast. Who would care to want her? She's, she's a fool. She pursued, she left a perfectly reasonable marriage relationship with the provisions of a household and just abandoned it and went and gave herself away for what? And now she's in bondage. She's a slave. There's no reason. But God sets his love on his people. Isn't it true with us? Do you understand yourself as once upon a time being bound in your sin? And maybe you were saved at a young age. Maybe by God's grace you didn't live a life of, you know, outward notable sin and you should thank God for that but no matter how old you were when you profess faith in Jesus Christ the fact is that you were born in sin and you were born enslaved to sin and you were in the slave market of sin 
And God bought you. He set his love on you. He chose to love you. And he bought you, not with 15 shekels of silver or a homer and a half of barley. He bought you with the precious blood of his only begotten son. Hosea's relationship to Gomer illustrates that the Lord chooses to love and to set his love on his people. He chooses not on account of any loveliness or something that his people can give back to him. Secondly, under the second point, you see that he redeems his people. I've already mentioned this, that he bought his people. Hosea purchases Gomer. He's, this is details and why the details? It's apparently not a very exorbitant cost. But why are we told this? It just underscores the fact that she's not wanted at this point. She's a prostitute. And, I mean, she's, she's basically owned. She has to be bought back out of her life of prostitution and sin. And Hosea pays the price. He shouldn't have to pay her. Pay, pay, rather pay for her. He, by right, shouldn't have to have anything to do with her. But he loves her because God loves his people. And in his love, God redeems his people. He redeems Israel. And of course, we know in the unfolding of history, that doesn't mean that every single Jew ethnically descended from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob is saved but it is absolutely clear in the entirety of Scripture, particularly in Romans 9, 10, 11, that out of that great multitude of ethnic Israel, God will yet redeem Jews, ethnic Jews, from every tribe. And in the last days, there will be a remnant of Israel and Judah that will be restored. The nation will be reconstituted under their Messiah, the descendant of David, Jesus Christ our Lord. He redeems Israel, a remnant, but the nation nonetheless. Gomer's, rather Hosea's redemption of Gomer illustrates Yahweh's redemption of Israel. And Yahweh's redemption of Israel illustrates the redemption of all of his people. Thirdly, he restrains Israel. And this is an act of love as well. Again, we're reflecting on Hosea's actions that God commanded, apparently, Hosea towards Gomer as an illustration of the Lord's love for his people. And in verse 3, Hosea says to Gomer, you shall stay with me for many days. So, So he's not abandoned her. He is still acknowledging a relationship to her and She is not to play the harlot, so she's to stop her prostitution. She is not to have relations with a man. And apparently, in verse 3, this means even with Hosea. So what's going on here? Hosea's relationship with Gomer, there is, he purchases her, her, he, he loves her. 
He, he works to redeem her. But in this period of time, there is a, a, a withholding of blessing, illustrating this present time. And it's been going on now for several thousand years, where Israel in the north in particular, but then Judah in the south, has been taken off, has, yes, the modern day nation of Israel uh, is, is in the plan of God, surely, but that is not the fulfillment of what the scriptures promised. And so to this day, Israel does not have a king, verse 4. Israel does not have a prince. Israel does not have sacrifice. That is not the house of the Lord there in Jerusalem, is it? It does not have a pillar, and it does not have the priesthood. That is the ephod or idols. Israel doesn't have any of these things. And so Gomer and Hosea's relationship to Gomer at this time, continuing acknowledging he has a relationship to her, but there is a limit in the, in the relationship for holy purposes. Again, don't go anywhere with that for illustration of marriage. You just, you've gone beyond the bounds of scripture and you're going to make an absolute mess of it. So just don't even go there. This is, this is very unique and particular to Hosea's relationship with Gomer for the singular purpose of illustrating Yahweh's judgment upon Israel and the fact that a partial hardening has occurred to Israel until this day. So Israel, God has not abandoned Israel, contrary to what many brothers and sisters in Christ in these days and evangelical pastors teach. God has not abandoned his people Israel. And I've said it many times, if he has, then I don't know what to make of the Bible, but more closely, I fear how do I know and why would I presume to think that God would still keep on loving me or his church? Look at the professing church of the Lord Jesus Christ and ask yourself, are we really that much better than Israel of old? So let's not go there. God has not abandoned his people Israel and the church is not spiritual Israel. God redeems Israel he restrains Israel from continuing in, uh, to some degree in her idolatry. And it is interesting that in this period of time we're in right now, that Israel is not largely characterized by worshiping Baals and Asherahs. They have a, a form of Judaism that is not in keeping with the scriptures. But it's interesting. Israel still exists, and yet there is a there is a, at the present time, a hardening of Israel and a hindrance, obviously, in the relationship between Israel and God because they are yet unrepentant. But in the last days, in the last days, after many days, and that many days we know now is thousands of years, verse 5 Afterward, the sons of Israel will return and seek Yahweh, their God, and David, their king. Let's just pause there. When's that happened? Never. Not yet. 
And David, their king, David, now wait a minute, we've been studying 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, 1 Kings, 2 Kings. David hasn't been around for a long time. I mean, that guy's been dead in the grave for hundreds of years. What do you mean they'll see David, their king? Here in verse 5 is a very clear messianic promise that one day Israel, every single tribe, including Judah, reunited They will return. They will actually seek Yahweh, their God, and David, their king. Who is that? That is Jesus. The descendant and root of David. In the last days, this is so clear in Hosea. After many days and afterward, the sons of Israel will return. As no matter how hardened The people seem at this time, no matter how impossible it would seem that those who are the ethnic descendants of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob would one day profess Jesus of Nazareth as, in fact, their Messiah, their Christ. No matter how impossible it may seem, it's going to happen because God has declared it to be so. And we know from Zechariah, for example, that that conversion, that national conversion will take place in the last days, in the days of tribulation, after Israel has been subjected to untold persecution that makes the Holocaust look small by comparison. And they will be surrounded by the nations of the world, the enemies of God who are on a mission to absolutely annihilate them. And it is in Zechariah 12 through 14 where God reveals that it is at that time that the Messiah will show up. His feet will touch on down on the Mount of Olives and he will turn his face towards Jerusalem and towards the enemies of his people Israel. And it is in Zechariah where we are told that at that time they will look on him whom they have pierced and mourn for him. What does that mean? That's the fulfillment of this passage. That is when they will return. That is when they will be renewed. That is when they will be restored to the Lord in the last days. They will be given a new heart. Notice the end of verse 5. In the last days, Israel will come in dread to Yahweh and to his goodness in the last days. Again, a clear marker of when this is going to happen. In dread, they they will be humble. Isaiah 53 will be their prayer of confession. They will reflect on their unfaithfulness they will mourn for it they will own it they will confess it for the the wickedness that it is they will confess that God has been right that Christ the son of God paid for their sins and atoned for them at the cross and as a whole that remnant that is left will be converted be given a new heart. The fulfillment of the new covenant will come about completely, Jeremiah 31. And Israel will be restored to her God. It's going to be beautiful. 
And it's all because of our God's covenant love for his people. We've mentioned and focused on Israel mostly because that is what the text is about. And we don't want to diminish it. But we who are Gentiles and who are part of Christ's church, his bride, should take great encouragement from this text. Because while the teaching may specifically be to Israel and God's relation to Israel, this is the way that God deals with his people. He redeems us from the slave market of sin. He sets his love on us and chooses us, not of any account of any goodness in us. He's patient with us. He bears with us. And in the last days, in Revelation chapter 19, at the marriage supper of the Lamb, we see that in the last days, when the church is in the presence of Christ, that the Lamb will be with his bride, verse 7, Revelation 19. And the bride will have made herself ready. And it was given to her to clothe herself in fine linen, bright and clean. For the fine linen is the righteous acts of the saints. In other words, Jesus is going to be successful in his love towards his bride, the church. He redeems the church. He purifies his bride. He gives to his bride a new heart. And in the last days, the church that now is so honor, so now so often marked by dishonor, the professing church anyways, it's, we have to acknowledge that we who are the professing church, that we who name the name of Christ, that like Israel of old, we tend to go off after every fad and every new trend that comes up. We tend to go after the approval of men rather than simple love and adoration of our faithful spiritual husband, the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet he loves us. He bears with us. And when we are faithless, he is still faithful. Let's praise him in prayer. God, we're astounded at your love. It's a remarkable story, the story of Hosea and Gomer. We're so thankful that you included it in Holy Scripture. We're so thankful to you that through this sinful woman, you show us the nature of an ugliness of our sin. And yet you love your people. What a great God of grace you are. We praise you and worship you for your covenant love to your people Israel. We are in awe of you that you will fulfill every promise made to her. And we long for the day when we see that remnant of Israel turn and trust in their Messiah. But for now, we thank you that you love your church, the bride comprised of Gentiles and Jews. And we would pray that you would put within us an an abhorrence of sin, that we would be careful about living individually and as a church in such a way that you, Lord Jesus, our head and our spiritual husband, that you would 
you, we would be careful to let you know we love you, we want to be faithful to you. Please keep us from sin and astound us afresh at your truly amazing love. In your name and for your honor, we pray. Amen.